I am glad to report that the troops under my command carried out your instructions to hold Delville Wood at all costs and that not a single detachment of this regiment retired from their position, either on the perimeter of the wood or from the support trenches. I regret they were not strong enough to drive back the enemy on the perimeter, where they were all wiped out, but trust that by holding the support trenches in Prince's and Buchanan Street with the aid of the few men left of the 1st, 2nd, and 4th Regiments and Trench Mortar Company, our losses were not in vain. Lieutenant Colonel E.F. Thackeray, 3rd South African Infantry Regiment, 1st South African Infantry Brigade, The Somme, July 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 14, Psalm Devil's Wood. Before we get started, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has submitted a review to iTunes recently and to everyone who has donated recently as well. Your generosity is, as always, humbling, and I am thankful for both the kind words and gifts. On the 15th of July, the Germans were reeling from the crushing blow they'd been dealt on Bazentan Ridge the day before, where the British 4th Army had seized much of the high ground needed for the next push. On this day, under rain, mist, and unrelenting artillery fire, the fight for Longival village went on. Bedraggled, and exhausted Tommies of the 9th Scottish Division had clawed their way into controlling the southern half of the village, and today the men of the South African Brigade were going to assault and seize the conjoined Delville Wood. Longueval is not as well remembered as the wood connected to it, but one hardly speaks of the Battle of the Somme without mentioning Delville Wood. There is a photograph of Delville Wood that makes its rounds through most histories of the Somme. In the Imperial War Museum's catalog, it is number Q4417, part of the Ministry of Information's First World War Official Collection. The photograph was taken by a Lieutenant John Warwick Brooke, and the description is as follows. Battle of Bazenton Ridge, 14 through 17 July, 1916. Soldiers digging a communication trench through Delville Wood. I've posted a link to the photo on the Facebook, Twitter, and BFWWP webpage, which is firstworldwarpodcast.com. The photograph depicts a scene of unimaginable devastation. In the center and traversing down to the bottom left corner is a trench with several soldiers in it. The trench, an ugly wound, gouged out of the scourged earth. In the center, a tin-hatted man faces the camera, his hands resting on the handle of a shovel. Behind him and the other men, a nightmarish background of shattered trees like arm stumps reaching for the sky. Throughout the photo, we see more tree stumps, shattered branches, Lewis gun drum magazines, an overcoat or a ground sheet draped over another tree stump. This was a patch of forest. Now it looks a befouled sore on an already wretched and hellish landscape. Towards the bottom left of the photo, we see three men, their backs at an oblique angle to the camera. Let's focus on the man in the middle of that trio. Whenever I see this picture, I spend the most time looking at him because his is the face I can see the clearest. Like the man to his left, his tunic is off, no helmet is on, and he's dragging on a cigarette in that pinch-fingered way that some smokers do it. When I see pictures, I sometimes make a story that will go with it. 
With this man, he seems to be looking at something with his mates as he smokes. Is it a corpse? Or a part of one sticking out of the trench wall? Is he smoking because the stench of death and rot are all around him? What was he thinking at that moment? Or was he numbed from shell shock of the scene around him? Or was he thinking at all? Like, perhaps in that world where a forest had been reduced to splintered firewood and men to lumps of bloody flesh and gristle, it was better to not think. Maybe he was just simply smoking, keeping his mind as empty as possible. If you didn't think, you couldn't want anything. If you couldn't want anything, it would make the likely prospect of death much easier. This is Delville Wood. This photograph shows the aftermath of a terrible struggle that raged through the wood during the summer of 1916. Let's get into it and see it from the perspective of the men of the 1st South African Infantry Brigade. Theirs is not the whole story of the battle for Delville Wood, but their immortalized experience is representative of the apocalyptic battle. Let's create a background for the mental picture you'll create while listening to this episode. Imagine the devastation of a World War I battlefield, and of the Somme in particular. Think of thousands of khaki-clad British troops moving up towards Longival village from the ruins of Montauban, Bernafay, and Trons woods, through the heaps of bricks and by the shattered tree stumps. Now add to that image the constant thunder of artillery in the background. Not individual guns going off but drum fire, constant drum fire. Now bring in the continual whistle of incoming shells and with them the brick dust clouds and black smoke and screams of the wounded and dying as these shells impacted in the British rear areas behind the burning Bazantan Ridge. Constant drum fire, constant whistles of incoming rounds the constant sound of men screaming, and everywhere the dead, by the thousands, in heaps, in carpets on the ground, in pieces. During the attack on Longival on the 14th of July, Tommies of the 9th Scottish Division had brutally clawed the southern half of the village away from the Germans. The adjoining Delville Wood was almost fully occupied, save for the northwest corner closest to the village. Longival's northern half remained in the enemy's hands, and he was putting up quite the stink about it. Fighting in the ruins of the village raged throughout the day. The key to Longival's and Delville Wood's importance was that both sat on the Longival Plateau, at the eastern end of Bazantan Ridge. It was high ground that overwatched the lands to the southeast as well as to the north. Longival was, and still is, a junction of four roads as well. One of these roads ran southeast to Guillemot, and another went north to Flair. Quick tip, those two village names will also be on the test later on. Longival and Delville Wood, along with Highwood, and Pozier, further to the west, were also parts of the German second defense line that had not been captured. They needed to be taken. Delville Wood, soon to be called Devil's Wood by those men who fought and died there, is best described in Ian Ice's book, Delville Wood. Quote, It is named because of its proximity to the village of Longival. It was known as Bois de la Vie, Wood of the Village, by the locals. Long open avenues had been cleared within the wood to allow the local landowner to ride his horse to all parts. These rides were also used to bring out the cut wood. The local sawmill in the village had also constructed a narrow gauge railway line through the wood. Unquote. The description continues. The wood is slightly less than a mile square, 156 acres. 
At the time, it was overgrown with gorse and thick grass and underbrush. It was described by someone who knew it before the war as a thick tangle of trees, chiefly oak and birch, and a dense hazel underbrush. Fighting had taken place in the area when the Germans overran the countryside in late 1914. The Germans fortified the northwest corner strongly as this covered the village and the road to Flair. Deep trenches and bunkers crisscrossed the area. The main ride running from Longueval through the wood in a northeast direction was known as Prince's Street on British Army maps. That's Prince's as in Prince apostrophe S, the street of the prince. This little clarification is written in Nigel Cave's book, also titled Delville Wood. And personally, as a teacher, it is of absolute importance to me that you know that small grammatical detail. With the near complete capture of Delville Wood, the British now had a salient looking at Flair and Le Boeuf not too far away. A salient is a bulge pushing into your enemy's front line. And to the soldiers inside it, there are disadvantages and advantages to being in one. As a disadvantage, the enemy surrounds you on three sides and can simply pour devastating fire into this contained area. For examples of this, see the Ypres salient up the line in Flanders, or stick around for the rest of this episode. As an advantage, you can now stress your enemy out and break his line by attacking in potentially three different directions, possibly all at once. So this is what the defending Germans were looking at, losing the high ground and the danger of the salient. Their response would be furious and ferocious. With only half of Longueval taken and that half under pressure, British 9th Division Commander Major General First ordered the men of his 1st South African Infantry Brigade to move up towards the battle in the early afternoon of July 14th. The 1st South African Infantry Regiment would be peeled off from the brigade to go support the capture of Longueval, but the rest of the unit was tasked with completing the capture of Delville Wood and consolidating 9th Division's hold on the wood. So the men of the South African Brigade began their march up. Of course, as was so often the case during the Somme, and during this phase in particular, 9th Division's attacks were unsupported on its flanks. Bazenton Ridge wasn't quiet. There was active fighting nearly everywhere along the line. But there was no purposeful attack made here to support the capture of Longueval and Delville Wood by putting pressure on the Germans everywhere. With just a very localized point of pressure on their line, the Germans could easily point any available resources to deal with that problem. This is a point where General Sir Henry Rawlinson's leadership was really found wanting. He himself had noted that constant and heavy pressure should be put on the Germans to stress them the hell out. The same notion French General Foch was emphasizing. But he inexplicably went on and continued with these piecemeal attacks. The first South African Infantry Brigade consisted of four battalions of South African volunteers, each representing an area of South Africa's white population. Most of the volunteers were of UK origin, with the 4th South African Regiment wearing kilts on account of their Scottish roots. There was a very noticeable contingent of Afrikaners as well, however. Some of the men had fought for the Boer side during the Boer War. These battalions were named as regiments, so we'll keep the regiment unit designation for continuity's sake. South Africa at the time was a restive dominion of the British Empire, with former Boer enemies now on the side of war with Germany and others rebelling. Because of the uprising and the need for men for the military campaigns against German East Africa, the South African government raised a brigade's worth of volunteers to send to France. The rest would stay closer to home. The South Africans were commanded by Brigadier General H.T. Lucan, 
an old sweat with some 35 years of military experience. Ian Ice describes him as having retained his inherent humanity and of having been a respected and much-loved commander. The South Africans themselves were also recognized as highly motivated colonials who, according to Mr. Ice, quote, exuded the highest degree of enthusiasm and patriotism, end quote. Like most men heading off to war in any age, they were young men, probably ready to get some. These guys had been on the front line since May. By the day of the attack, the brigade had already taken considerable casualties since it had entered the Somme battlefield on the 5th of July. Most notably, 4th Regiment's commander, Lieutenant Colonel Jones, having been killed on the 11th. This was mainly from the Germans relentlessly shelling its bivouac areas, those being the recently captured Bernafay and Trones Woods, as well as some combat actions in those areas. The majority of these men were replaced, and as the brigade made its way through the shell-plowed villages, roads, and fields, it counted its strength as 121 officers and 3,032 other ranks, meaning enlisted men. As the units moved up to Longueval, they very quickly discovered just how hot a zone it was. Private Sidney Martin Carey, a 21-year-old in the 1st South African Regiment, told his experiences as follows. We all knew that we were going against a pretty tough enemy, but we didn't expect anything like what actually happened. While going up to Longueval, my friend next to me, Private G.F. Greenwood, said, Man, but there's a damn lot of bees around here. I said, bees be blowed. Those are bullets flying around. Unfortunately, about four minutes afterwards, a bullet caught him and killed him outright. A short time later, Carey himself became a casualty, getting hit with a ricocheted bullet that blew off his lower jaw. He was evacuated and survived the war. His jaw was rebuilt by plastic surgeons. The fighting in Longueval was fierce, and the South Africans, along with their fellow British, could make no headway into the northern half of the village's ruins. The Germans were dug in, with hidden machine gun teams wreaking havoc with near impunity. It was believed that both Longueval and Delville Wood had extensive tunnel systems dug underneath them that facilitated German troop movements. An attack on Delville Wood itself was postponed until 6 o'clock the next morning, the 15th of July. The 1st South African Regiment would stay at Longueval, and two companies of the 4th South African Regiment were sent south of the wood to assist in the attack on Waterlot Farm. All of the remaining men in the brigade were to attack the wood, with Lieutenant Colonel Tanner of the 2nd Regiment in overall command of the operation. Tanner is remembered as a tough but caring commander. And one of his men later recalled, I never think of him, but I think of his smile. Early the next morning, BEF artillery rained down thunderously on Delville Wood, toppling trees, uprooting undergrowth, and killing and wounding Germans amongst the trees. Overhead, RFC aircraft buzzed over the battlefield, strafing and harassing any Germans visible on the ground. At 6.15, the barrage lifted, and the South Africans, out of the morning mist, rushed into the wood. Things happened fast that morning. By 7 a.m., all of the wood south of Princess Street had been cleared. German resistance was light and disorganized, resulting in the capture of 138 prisoners. Three companies of the 2nd Regiment entered the wood from the east, clearing the wood north of the bisecting Princess Street until they reached the ride known as the Strand. The Germans were pushed out or back until the South African troops, moving through the tangled underbrush, broken trees and shell holes, reached the northwest corner of the wood. Here, Delville Wood came up to the northern half of Longueval, and in this corner were German machine gun nests that stopped any further advance that day. 
South Africans reached the northern perimeter of the wood, and their movements were detected by German observers to the north in Flare Valley. Immediately, the enemy's artillery began a firestorm on the edges of Delville Wood, as the Germans had nearly everywhere on the Somme battlefield pre-registered for artillery strikes. Despite the shelling and machine gun fire coming from trenches beyond Delville Wood, the men of the South African Brigade did their best to dig in amongst the underbrush and thick tree roots. It was already exhausting work, digging through the thick roots to scratch out shallow foxholes and trenches. Now, under incoming artillery fire, it was even worse. Casualties were heavy as the rounds exploded amongst the frantically hacking and digging South Africans. If you think back to episode 12 and the battle for Mamet's wood, you'll recall that the main struggle there was trying to get into the wood. This is the case with so many World War I operations. It was the capture of a position that frequently created the immediate issue. Later on, it was the consolidation phase that created the next set of issues. This was the story at Mamet's Wood. Once the Welshmen of the 38th Division broke in, they took that wood. Here at Delville Wood, we have a consolidation scenario. The South Africans took the majority of Delville Wood and they did it fast. But now, they would have to hold it. They were in a salient bulging into the German lines from a position at which all nearby German guns were aiming. Local German commanders saw Delville Wood as a position that required recapture, per von Falkenhayn's orders on lost ground. But they also saw the opportunity to inflict serious losses on the British while doing so. They would fulfill General von Bailoff's order to make the enemy pick his way forward over corpses. The South African Brigade was in a tough position. For all intents and purposes trapped, they had to hold on to Delville Wood in order to keep the positions their British brethren were clinging on to in Longueval. If Delville Wood fell, Longueval could not hold. Similarly, if Longueval fell, Delville Wood would be lost. There was no way out but through now. And the Germans brought the hate. The first counterattack came in at 11.30, with Germans of the 2nd and 3rd Battalions of the Reserve Infantry Regiment 107 hitting the wood from the southeast and east. Both battalion attacks were shot down by the South Africans with rifle and machine gun fire. The Germans got within 100 meters of the wood, but with over 500 men lost, they could go no further. Hugh Mallet was with C Company of the 2nd Regiment, and they were establishing a line along the southern edge of the wood, close to Longueval. Delville Wood went as follows for him. We arrived at the edge of the wood at about dawn, everybody on tenterhooks, and just as the last man got in, old Fritz opened fire with big and little guns, rifle and machine gun fire. What a time we had. Our men were being rolled over like nine pins, but on went the boys and by 8.30 we had accomplished our task. We gave old Fritz the time of his life. I took a slow and steady aim and made every shot tell. My only regret was that I did not get my bayonet into him. Later there was a lull, and it was during this lull that I was hit. I was on guard at the time and it was my duty to keep a sharp lookout over the parapet. I had only been a few minutes when old Fritz sent a huge shell right in front of our trench. It blew away a portion of the trench and knocked a tree over on top of us. One of the splinters of the shell landed me one on the right cheek, which of course put me out for a few moments. It made a nasty hole. I did not wish to leave, but I was told to take another wounded man into safety. We were shelled all the way to the dressing station, but I got him away without any further mishap. On my way through the wood, I saw many of our brave lads dead. Both my captains, Clifford and Gray, are killed, and my platoon lieutenant is seriously wounded, hit in eight places, I hear. He is a brave fellow. I hope he gets over it. End quote. 
The next attack came at 1.30, when Reserve Regiment 72 hit Delville Wood from the northeasterly direction of Flair Valley. At 3, Reserve Infantry Regiment 6 of the Bavarian 10th Infantry Division, so recently mauled by the French in Episode 7, attacked from the east. An hour and a half later, the Germans attacked again from the north. These counterattacks were also desperately repulsed. A little over an hour after the last attack, it was reported Germans were massing again north of Delville Wood. Just to the south of the wood, on the road to Guillemot, at the ruins of a sugar refinery named Waterlot Farm, men of the 5th Camerons and two companies of the 4th South African Regiment, nicknamed Our Jocks, as they were ethnic Scotsmen, succeeded in pushing the Germans out of the area. The Camerons and South African Scots soon had to alley at the toot suite when the Germans brought down such a punishing bombardment that no one could go near the place. The South Africans now set to digging and consolidating however they could as German shells continuously pounded the wood. They were reinforced by the 1st South African Regiment, transferred from Longueval, and B Company, 9th Seaforth Highlanders, a pioneer company that worked its collective ass off to improve positions in the wood. As the digging was hard, and existing trenches were already in a ruined state, the men worked at digging one and two-man foxholes that could be connected later into trench lines. Amongst the riflemen, Lewis and Vickers' machine gun teams were dispersed to create interlocking fields of fire against future attacks. A strong point was created at the intersection of Buchanan Street and Princess Street, Buchanan being one of the rides in the southern part of the wood. Support trenches were dug along those rides as well. The South Africans had a perimeter inside the wood by evening. It was about a mile square, and because of its size, the 12 infantry companies of the brigade could only make a thinly held line. Despite the reports of massing men, there were no further attacks that evening. But the Germans opened up a terrific barrage on Delville Wood, beginning a night of terror that at times saw 400 artillery shells per minute plow into the wood. Already, Delville Wood was fast becoming a horror show. A private Charles Dunn noted that dead men were lying about. At some parts, one was obliged to step over the dead bodies of Germans, Britishers, South Africans, and Highlanders. And some awful sights they were. Some men with half bodies, heads off, someone really in an awful state. All the time that I spent in Delville Wood in one large shell hole, a dead jock was sitting upright. He had evidently died from loss of blood. On his left lay only half a man. He was a jock too. All that could be seen of him was his kilt and two legs. Yes, there were some awful sights to see in Delville Wood. End quote. The shelling continued all night. Sleep was impossible unless you were dead. The shell burst, the collapsing trees, the impact of incoming oblivion went on, turning each minute into an hour. The air inside the wood became steadily more unbreathable as smoke and gas hung amongst the tree trunks. Morning came on the 16th, and with it a trench mortar barrage on the northern half of Longueval. Veterans of the battle noted that at this point, there wasn't a wall left in Longueval higher than three feet. After pounding the ruins, the 11th Royal Scots pushed up North Street again, this being the street that led to Flair Village further north. To coincide with the Scots' attack on the village, the men of the 1st South African Regiment, again, more a battalion than a regiment, attacked in the wood, working to push the Germans out of the western end of Princess Street. This was the end of the ride closer to Longueval. The attackers instantly walked into heavy machine gun fire. The 1st South African Regiment was joined by the 2nd, but no progress other than heavy casualties was made. 
pitched combat, however, didn't let up. It went on all day. It was during this attack that Lieutenant Arthur Cragg, an Irishman hailing from County Donegal on the Emerald Isle, was an unexpected participant in one of thousands of extraordinary events that happened all over the Western Front. We were ordered to attack a section of trench strongly held and supported at either end by machine guns. Rushing across 40 yards of no man's land under a, a heavy enfilading fire from the machine guns, we got held up. Our trench ran at right angles to the German trench. Between the two was about 15 yards clear with barricades at each end. It was just short of the German trench that I dropped. Most of my men, too, had fallen. I managed to roll some yards to the intervening quote-unquote trench between the opposing barricades. I call it a trench, but the ground had been practically leveled by shellfire. Seventy-five yards away, the machine guns were blazing at me. I got hit twice in the left shoulder. It seemed I didn't have an earthly hope. Then Falds, in broad daylight, it was about 10.30 a.m., climbed the barricade and crawled to me. He was accompanied by Private Baker and another man named Private Estman. Together, the three men dragged Lieutenant Craig back to South African trenches under heavy fire, and Baker was severely wounded in the operation. I must say this, Falds was my only chance. It was a millionth chance, Craig said, but he pulled it off. That Falds was Private W.F. Falds, and he'd been doing incredibly dangerous missions all day. But for dragging Craig back to friendly lines, he would be awarded the Victoria Cross later that year. Going back to episode 9, again, I really feel this was done by the power of love. Faults put himself out there all day long to help his battle buddies out. Both sides dug in where they were and continued blazing away at each other. Outside the wood, the Germans could be seen massing for new counterattacks. Every inch of lost ground was to be retaken without fail. Rain came down that afternoon, adding mud to the miserable conditions, but allowing for the collection of water in tin hats where possible. Thirst was an issue on the Somme, as getting water up to the firing line was impossible at times. In the evening, German artillery pounded the Devil's Wood yet again. Indeed, they'd never really stopped. Machine gunner Arthur Stanley told of being under bombardment. The terrible, awful fear that a concentrated bombardment gives you is indescribable. You hear the shell coming and cower in the bottom of the trench. And then, say, 50 yards away, the trench flies in the air in a blinding flash and an awful noise. And men you know have been utterly blotted out. No peace is ever found. And if it was a 12-inch, there is a hole that an ox wagon could hide in. And this goes on at the rate of thousands of shells per hour on a front of 500 yards. But the British were hammering at all known German positions in the area as well. About 10 shells to the Hollands one, Stanley recalled. The already depleted German Infantry Regiment 163 out of Schleswig-Holstein reported years later that the regiment was, in different positions, unprotected against the terrible enemy artillery fire of all calibers. It repulsed innumerable enemy attacks. The physical and mental demands in the fighting against overpowering numbers of men and resources of material were so monstrous that they are admired today. Delville Wood was hit with heavy explosive and gas that night, and a German counterattack hit the South African perimeter that night. Corporal Ernest Deutsch found himself in the murderous chaos of close-quarters combat. In the general melee, I suddenly bumped against a Bosch weighing about 20 stone, about 280 pounds. I parried his bayonet, 
missed the mark with my own, and found myself sitting on his face, knocking spots off him and doing my best to alter his good looks. But it was an unsavory job, with his teeth firmly gripped in my thigh. The bayonet must have gone through his skin, judging the blood about him. We had both fallen into a shell hole. He had fallen on top of our rifles, and I could not release my bayonet from under him. He had gripped my leg, and the pain was agonizing. But at the same time, I was losing no time in inflicting all the damage I could upon him. A timely bullet from one of our officers who had come up put an end to his earthly career. The line held for a second night. The South Africans manned their ever-thinner perimeter in the wood with all men standing to and constantly peering into the darkness for enemy troops creeping up amongst the tree stumps. Corporal Deutsch also said, When it is a matter of life and death, I fancy sleep is far from anyone's thoughts as the intense excitement counteracts it. But at the same time, I found myself falling off to sleep standing up, a thing I had never done before. The men inside Devil's Wood were becoming thoroughly exhausted. Resupply was chaotic as few runners could make it through the hailstorm of shells blanketing the entire area. Wounded and dying men were piling up around the brigade's command post at the corner of Prince's and Buchanan Streets. Ammunition and water were being taken from corpses nearby, and there were plenty of those. There was nowhere to bury the dead, and many that were were simply came back up when shell bursts hit the area. The bombardment went on into the 17th of July. The 9th Scottish Division responded that day by pounding Longueval for an hour again in the early morning. Now, the 27th Brigade came in and made an attack up the village's North Street. The attack failed, and the depleted 27th Brigade withdrew as Tommies of the 3rd Division relieved them. Longueval would now belong to them. Delville Wood remained 9th Division's responsibility, and Brigadier General Lucan was pushing desperately to have his men relieved as well. To the south, there was a bright spot as the Cameron Highlanders and South African Scots took Waterlot Farm and occupied it. Coinciding with the same failed attack in Longueval from the day before, the men of the first South Africans resumed their previous day's push from north, push north from Princess Street. This renewed push failed as well, leaving more men from the Cape of Good Hope area dying and dead amongst the other bodies all around them. In the early afternoon, the Germans rained down a firestorm of artillery again, raking Delville Wood from one side to the other. Under cover of the barrage, they attacked from the northwest corner of the wood, as well as from the southeast side. In both places, they pushed the South Africans deeper into the wood. From the northwest, they reached Princess Street. The line held, but fighting was fierce. In the evening, Lieutenant Colonel Tanner was shot in the leg and had to be evacuated. Lieutenant Colonel E.F. Thackeray, commander of the 3rd South African Regiment, took over command from Tanner. The line stabilized, but the bombardment continued. The Germans' artillery was a mix of high explosive and gas, both tear gas and asphyxiating agents. To make things even more horrible, if it can be believed, British artillery meant for the Bosches began falling short in the wood as well. Smoke hung in the tree stumps again as men were cut down. Shell shock began to infect more and more men. There was only so much an exhausted mind, ravaged by such terror, could take. On the morning of the 18th, the Germans pulled back into their northwest corner of Delville Wood. They too were in desperate straits. Quote, the conditions of the troops ridiculed any description after four days of endless fighting. Everyone was at the end of their strength, and men from different regiments were all mixed together. 153rd, 72nd, 26th, 163rd, 9th, 52nd, 
end quote. Were they pulling out because they were done with trying to take this godforsaken wood? No. They pulled back to unleash the heaviest bombardment their artillery had yet fired. It was to be an 11-hour barrage of unparalleled intensity. It came in with unimaginable violence. The ground rocked and pitched like a ship in stormy seas. High explosives and gas shells came in at the mind-numbing rate of seven explosions per second. 20,000 shells fell in the 156 blasted and body-filled acres of Delville Wood that day. Renowned World War I poet Wilfred Owen wrote in his poem, Mental Cases, that the war traumatized were men whose minds the dead have ravished. It is difficult for me to think of these men in Delville Wood that 18th day of July in 1916 without imagining the majority of them at least losing some of their tenuous grip on sanity as they found themselves trying to breathe inside a volcano. The dead all around them must have reached their thin and pale fingers out to them, trying to pull them in, taking a part of them if they touched. It was the fourth day of heavy fighting for the 1st South African Infantry Brigade. It was getting hard for anyone remaining in command to keep their men awake, despite this apocalyptic bombardment. Water was running low, or it was out. Ammunition was low, and much of what remained was dirty from the mud, making it useless. It was the same with rifles and machine guns. At 2 p.m., the Germans attacked. The shells continued to come in on the South Africans. The Germans attacked in waves, and in the eastern end of the wood, A and C companies of the 3rd South Africans were overrun. Frank Marillier was a Lewis gunner with the 2nd South Africans, and he was sent to the northern perimeter to hold back the tide of Feldgrau. Quote, We were holding the most advanced post in the wood. We did not realize that a couple of days earlier, the survivors had been told to withdraw. In the circumstances, this was understandable enough. The conditions were appalling. I have never known such shelling and how any of us lived is still a mystery. Absolute hell turned inside out. I never expected to get out whole. Shells dropping everywhere. We get orders to return in the afternoon late. I think, in fact, I'm almost sure that our lives were saved when a very brave officer, Captain Hoptroff, made his way to our position. He wasted no time. Get out, he said, and was almost immediately hit by a bullet and killed outright. It is strange how, in the most urgent and tragic circumstances, one notices things of minor importance. For as Captain Hoptroff dropped my eye caught sight of his very beautiful gold wristlet watch, and I have never ceased to regret that I did not take it off and send it to his family. I am sure that they would have appreciated it. Hoptroff lives on in my memory, a fine officer and a most gallant man. End quote. All through the wood, the South Africans began falling back wherever possible. Many fought wisely, moving back under cover and returning fire whenever possible. Most were to be overwhelmed throughout the afternoon, dying lonely deaths among the remains of friends and foes. Delville Wood was in danger of being captured by the Germans, opening up the dangerous possibility of the British flank being left in the air. The South Africans began to gather around the command post at Buchanan and Princess Street, seeking more ammunition. Lieutenant Colonel Dawson of the 1st South Africans, put in command of the forces inside the wood, was rushed in with 150 exhausted but motivated men as reinforcements. These included the men of a trench mortar battery doing duty as PBIs. The Germans kept pushing into the shattered wood, and some units reached the southern edge of the forest. 
Here they were exposed to machine guns from Longueval and artillery from Montauban, both of which opened a world of hate on the enemy. Nevertheless, some Germans pressed on and actually came out of Delville Wood on the southwest end. They were rushed by an ad hoc group of men from Longueval, led by Highlanders. The Germans beat feet and ran back into the woods. Brigadier General Lucan was working like hell to have his men relieved by the 26th Brigade of his own 9th Division. The relief was on for that night, and it did begin, but only those South Africans outside of the wood were formally relieved. Other formations were making their way towards the accursed wood, albeit slowly. In the wood, Lieutenant Colonel Thackeray, with Lieutenant Colonel Dawson also on the scene, continued the desperate fight. Rounds were still coming down everywhere, and through the evening the Germans launched attack after attack. The Germans eventually had all of Delville Wood, save for the southwest corner, in their possession. But Dawson's reinforcements, in particular those men of the trench mortar battery converted to infantrymen and led by a second lieutenant, Edward Phillips, were the help the bone-tired and battle-worn South Africans needed. Phillips was wounded early in the fight, but continued meeting the Germans head-on with rifles and grenades. He himself personally ended the lives of 12 Germans in the fighting, and when not fighting, was bringing up other reinforcing troops. Private Fred Hampson and his two mates survived the barrage to rise and confront their attackers. The Germans opened up with everything they had. It was like hail. There were three of us who'd been together all along, Billy Yo, Lance Corporal Robinson, and myself. Yo and I dug a little hole about 18 inches deep, and we crouched in there. The shells rained down on us. The debris being thrown up by these shells was so intense that it was actually filling up the hole we were sitting in. By some miracle, we weren't touched. Huge trees were crashing all around us, and the branches of trees were falling. A green forest before. It suddenly became a shambles of broken tree trunks and broken branches. Eventually, we made our way to a shell hole near the edge of the wood, where we found other troops. The German infantry came over in mass formation, and this time we let them have it. Our artillery blazed away, but it was mainly the rifle and machine gun fire that repulsed them. Everywhere you looked, there were dead bodies. Germans and our fellows. They were all over the place. 26th Brigade did not relieve the South Africans inside Delville Wood on the night of the 18th to the 19th. The men were stuck in the ruined wood, exhausted, shell-shocked, no longer capable of figuring out what was real or what was mirage. Eyeballs had sunk deep into their sockets by now. Men were burning calories at an astronomical pace due to spotty food supply and the stress. Morning on the 19th opened with a new German attack out of the northwest corner of the wood. It was made by men of the German Reserve Infantry Regiment 52, and it cut straight through the worn-out men of the 3rd South Africans. 200 men were taken prisoner by the Germans. It didn't help either that British artillery screaming in was falling short, falling on South Africans instead of Germans. Help was coming, finally. The men inside the wood were already supposed to have been relieved, but for reasons lost to history, they never were. Now, the 53rd Brigade of the 18th Division, attached to the 9th Division, was moving into the attack. Tommies of the 8th Norfolks led an assault into the southwest corner of Delville Wood. They made it to Princess Street, where they threw the Germans off balance and allowed Lieutenant Colonel Thackeray and his band the chance to pour what fire they had available into the enemy's flanks. Fighting continued all day. Thackeray, from his command post at Buchanan Street, set the example. By this point, he had been hit six times and yet stayed at his post. Under his leadership, a band of South Africans clustered around Thackeray fought off attack after attack by the Germans. 
but the situation remained desperate. Of Charlie Company of the 2nd South Africans, only 15 men and one Lewis gun remained. Some men were relieved that night. Private Fred Hampson and his two friends were three of those men. Quote, Towards the evening, we found ourselves mixed up with some strange troops. We found that these people had come to relieve us. A young officer from one of the Scottish regiments, there were very few South Africans left, approached the three of us and said to me, Who are you? Are you South Africans? When I said yes, he said, You poor buggers, get out of it. We've come to relieve you. We didn't need to be told twice. End quote. Deep inside Delville Wood, Thackeray and his ad hoc force were still under constant attack, whether it be from constant sniper fire or from massed attacks. He had a runner get a message to Brigadier General Lucan that read, The strain of five days' continuous work and fighting is becoming beyond endurance, and as I have now only Lieutenant Phillips and one or two NCOs, I do not feel that we can hope to hold the trench in the face of any determined assault. That Lieutenant Phillips just mentioned had this to say of the Lightbird Colonel. On the night of 19th July, when the enemy massed and assaulted our lines of trenches, Lieutenant Colonel Thackeray jumped onto the Parados and threw hand grenades. And when the enemy's hand grenades exploded, throwing him into the trenches, he immediately got up and continued throwing grenades until the enemy's attacks were repulsed. In my opinion, had Lieutenant Colonel Thackeray not shown his total disregard of danger, our men would never have fought the way they did in Delville Wood. With the German attacks of the 19th, gaps in the British line between Princess Street and Longueval were appearing. The men inside Delville Wood managed to hold out yet another night. At 8 o'clock on the morning of the 20th, after six nights of no sleep, Thackeray reported he could no longer keep some of his men awake. Urgent. My men are on their last legs. I cannot keep some of them awake. They drop with their rifles in hand asleep in spite of heavy shelling. We are expecting an attack. Even that cannot keep some of them from dropping down. Food and water has not reached us for two days, though we have managed on rations of those killed, but must have water. I am alone with Phillips, who is wounded, and only a couple of sergeants. Please relieve these men today without fail as I fear they have come to the end of their endurance. German attacks continued, and Thackeray and his men held them all off. Ian Eyes argues that this defense may well have saved the entire British front. At noon, Field Marshal Haig inquired about the position at Delville Wood, realizing that a German victory there would endanger the masses of British artillery in Caterpillar Valley and allow the Germans to enfilade the British advance. Outside the wood, the British 3rd Division attacked Delville Wood from the west. Two companies of the 2nd Suffolk were wiped out by German machine guns in their attack, and the 10th Royal Welch Fusiliers found themselves hit by their own machine guns. As the day went on, Men of the 76th Brigade worked their way into the wood and linked up with the last remaining South Africans inside. Tommies made it to the corner of Prince's and Buchanan Street, where Lieutenant Colonel Thackeray himself reported later. At last, on the evening of the 20th, five days after we had gone into the wood, we were relieved. We marched out, two other officers and myself, all wounded, and 140 other ranks. When we paraded the next day at a place, ironically enough, called Happy Valley, there were less than 800 of us. The ordeal 
of the South African Brigade was over. For a chilling majority of the men, the war itself was over. Of the 121 officers and 3,032 other ranks who went into battle on 15 July, only five officers and 750 men reported present on the 21st. The South African Brigade had been wiped out. Ninth Division itself pulled out of the fight for Longueval and Delville Wood. It would have to be taken by fresh units. As the 20th ended, the British were once again in possession of half of Longueval and half of Delville Wood. Little had changed since the 15th of July, except that, according to a German officer, the wood was a wasteland of shattered trees, charred and burning stumps, craters thick with mud and blood and corpses, corpses everywhere, in places they were piled four deep. Worst of all was the lowing of the wounded. It sounded like a cattle ring at a spring fair. The relief of the 1st South African Infantry Brigade did not end the battle for Delville Wood. The fight for the wood raged on into August and lasted until the 3rd of September, when men of the British 24th Division finally took and held the wood. Until that day, the wood was just another corner of hell, another part of the Somme grind. But the tale of the South Africans and what they went through is indicative of the experiences of those who followed them. To briefly analyze the battle for Delville Wood, here we see yet again piecemeal attacks made by the British against a strong and determined enemy. The Germans could be beat. The 14th July attacks had shown that clearly and with no hesitation. So why Rawlinson and his corps commanders opted for small, set-piece attacks in the face of what worked is frustrating as all hell. Not only that, but very frequently these attacks were unsupported by greater resources or even adjacent units. It was not uncommon for the units right next to you in the trenches to not know what you were up to. The only good to come of the Delville Wood operation was that it tied up large numbers of German soldiers and chewed them up. Towards the end of the South African ordeal, there were some 13,000 Germans in and around the wood, focused on eliminating the salient. Of course, it was the same for the men of the British Fourth Army. Between the 15th of July and the 14th of September, the Fourth Army was to take 82,000 casualties while pushing its front line forward barely a thousand meters on a five-mile section of the front. So the cost of bleeding the Germans out on the Somme made it an equally devastating war for the British. But it was arguably what had to be done. The German army had to be ground down in order to create the conditions for victory. Artillery pounded away, churning the Picardy soil and the men in it. The Somme grind would continue on. Next time, we're going to the other end of the Bazentan Ridge on the left to a village named Hosier. Until then, I want to say thanks again for the reviews and donations. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to contribute to it, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Just leaving a star review is a big help to the show. It gets us noticed on whatever algorithms make podcasts more popular and make us more visible. If you have a moment and feel so inclined, please consider leaving a few of your thoughts on the show as well, because your thoughts on the show are just awesome. If you would like to make a financial contribution towards keeping the server lines open or towards more research material, please visit firstworldwarpodcast.com. There is a PayPal button there that will let you make the donation of your choice. Okay, any questions, comments, or concerns, 
please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at, at WW1podcast. You can also go through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the BFWWP. Talk to you again soon. Take care.